A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, H, uh, no, no, start that again. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T. At a uh, strong bad alphabet recording. Good morning, good morning, good morning. William is ever so slightly tired. I cannot recall the last time I had a good night's sleep. I have needed a good eight to ten hours every night for the past couple of weeks, and I think I'm averaging about three, maybe four. I had a we we and it wasn't just me. We had a sick child for a couple of days, and it was hard to sleep. We had. There's been busy season stuff. Last night, I don't even know what happened. We took a kid to uh, the movies. Isaac got to see The Incredibles at uh, Denver Museum of Nature and Science. And yes, I had sweet tea for dinner, but that was like at 5.30. I don't know why I couldn't sleep, but I couldn't sleep. But here we are, recording a podcast. And before I get into a couple chapters of The Kid, because Lord knows I don't want to talk for an hour today, uh, I do have a rant for you all. Parody clips, rants, and storytelling. I haven't had a good rant in a while. Uh, and I'm recording this even as I watch my son so that my wife can uh, get some more sleep because somebody ought to sleep while they can. So you may hear him in the background and hopefully he won't be too big a factor. Uh, but uh, yeah, so uh, I'm in the customer service industry. I provide not exactly just a product and not exactly just a service. I I capture memories, I encapsulate experiences, I throw a butterfly net around events that were, are, for the most part, one-time events that will never happen again, and uh, regardless of all that, I deal with customers. And uh, as those of you who deal with customers know, it's a very popular saying, the customer is always right. Customer is always right even when they are wrong. The customer is always right even when they are an idiot. The customer is always right even when they are a entitled millennial who thinks the world revolves around them. So, one of, uh, in the last 10 weeks, I have produced, oh golly, 80, I think, videos, uh, something like that. We'll call it 80. And uh, one of those videos was for the Lakewood Cultural Center. And I'm very happy to have them as a client, which is one reason why we're going to try to keep all the LCC customers happy. But I had produced and sent out those uh, DVDs, the Blu-rays, at least two weeks before I heard from this lady who shall remain nameless. Um, we'll just call her Lady. And it had been at least two weeks, possibly three, that she had had her product and she apparently didn't get around to watching it and you know that's kind of up to her then she got around to watching it and apparently the dvd or blu-ray we didn't figure out which that more on that in a second um did not play properly again um that that happens it's unfortunate that it happens and i i wish it wouldn't but you know sometimes we have discs that don't work properly so anyway, she's had this for a couple of weeks, and then I get a call last Saturday. So, A, first off, she calls during non-business hours, um, but seems to expect that I would pick up. And because I'm a foolish person, I'm trying to help a friend move, I put down half of the couch I'm carrying, and 
answer the phone. <laughs> Hi, little baby boy. Yes. You gonna interrupt Daddy while he records a podcast? Uh huh. I answer the phone on a Saturday, and this lady is like, "Hey, my DVD, your Blu-ray, my mother video I ordered from you is not playing. You need to make it right." And I said, "Okay, yes, we will do no. what we can. Is it a DVD or a Blu-ray?" No. I don't know. You don't know if it's a DVD. Okay, well, we'll, we'll figure that out. Um, if you, I'm, I'm in the middle of, of something right this second. And uh, by the way, it's also Saturday. You called me after business hours, but uh, um, I will. We'll figure out what you need, and if you'll confirm your address, perhaps you could text it to me. We will send you another one as soon as possible. Well, that may not be soon enough because we're going out of town Thursday, so I need to have it Wednesday. Would it be here by Wednesday? Uh, again, I, I repeat that she has had this for two, if not three weeks, but all of a sudden it's imperative that she get another copy immediately. Um, and so, well, I, I might be able to, to get it to you by Wednesday, so well, maybe you, should, maybe you should deliver it, maybe you should bring it over personally, just so that, uh, you know, it, this happens in time. And I, I get off the phone and have asked her to text me her address. She does text me her address on Federal Boulevard and the, uh, the name of the place, Lakewood Cultural Center, where the performance took place. So she has established that text messages are acceptable. You know, she didn't say, I'm not gonna text you, or you need to call me, or whatever. I asked if she could text me her address, she did. Um, and I go home, as soon as I'm done with the move, I go home, uh, my wife is watching the baby, you know, she, there's things she needs, there's lots of other things, lots of other things we need to get done. But I go home and immediately pull out the order forms from the Lakewood Cultural Center. I do not have one from this person, which, well, there's one of two things that happened. Either this whole entire thing was just a scam to get a free DVD, which is a possibility, or there were one or two order forms where someone just attached a check or cash to an order form um, and uh, prob probably not cash, attached a check to an order form and wrote nothing on it. There was at least one order form that had nothing whatsoever written on it because the person apparently was that lazy. Maybe it's the same person. But, so I have no record of her order, but we're going to assume that she actually ordered one. And because I have no record of her order, I don't know if she needs a DVD or a Blu-ray. So. Since I don't have that information and I'm trying to take care of her as soon as possible, I text her DVD or Blu-ray and wait a while and got no response. Text her. I would have pulled this information from your order form, but I just went back through them and cannot find your order. No response. I dropped what I was doing an hour ago, this is still me, and rushed home in order to make your replacement video as fast as possible, but without the answer to the above question, I was unable to. We have now missed the Saturday mailing window. My apologies. If you will confirm whether or not you need a DVD or Blu-ray by Monday morning, I will make one and put it in the mail, and it sh should arrive by Wednesday. Now, I, I didn't need to tell her that I dropped everything. I suppose I'm being a little snarky, but it was a Saturday, and she had established that this was something that had to happen as soon as possible, and that text messages were acceptable. So, hours go by. I have gotten started doing something else. When I come back to my phone, why didn't you call me? This is from her. I'm beginning to think your company is no good. You're the one who screwed up in the first place, and now you're trying to spin this around on me to try and make me feel guilty about something? You are unprofessional at best. Both DVD and Blu-ray. If I have to pick one, Blu-ray, thanks. I think you should hand deliver this. It seems you need a lesson in customer service. 
showed this thread to my wife and uh, she got very upset on my behalf. Uh, one second, my baby needs something. And a quick diaper change later and I am back. So uh, anyway, I get this, this long list of texts about how I'm unprofessional and I need a lesson in customer service and I'm a horrible person and I count to 10 didn't do it. I think it might have been 112. And then I call the lady back and, and in as polite a customer service voice as I can explain that it's, it is unfortunate that her disc won't play and I apologize if I seemed unreasonable. I have a child with a fever who was just in the ER last night and I'm not at my best and she seemed very understanding about that. And I went on to ask her if she had a DVD or a Blu-ray and she, uh, she wasn't sure. We, we never did establish that she actually ordered anything or had a DVD or a Blu-ray um, because he, she was either too lazy or too stupid to be able to look at the disc in front of her, the one that she said wouldn't play, and see on the label if it said DVD or Blu-ray. And because I was so tired and out of sorts, I didn't even think to ask her, you know, to look at the disc. But anyway, so, okay, I made both. I made a DVD and a Blu-ray. Um, I delivered those to her. I, I went, I hand delivered them because I needed a lesson in customer service. Um, but on my way to church Sunday morning, went by myself because my wife was home with the sick child. I went 40 minutes out of my way to hand deliver and asked her if she would please leave the disc that was not working in her mailbox so that I could, you know, try to figure out what was wrong. This was not done. There was mail in the mailbox and I had to shove what I was delivering in with it. But again, we've established that this woman is either really lazy or really stupid. Uh, I drop off the discs at uh, 10 something in the morning. Figured I would hear some response on, and then texted her, you've got mail. Figured I would get some sort of response, good or bad. Three o'clock in the afternoon, I've heard nothing from this woman. So I texted her just to, uh, to say, by the way, in case there's any confusion in the future, you can usually tell if it's a DVD or Blu-ray by looking at the front of the disc and God's blessings on your family. 5.30 that evening, so almost eight hours after the delivery that she demanded be done immediately, she says thank you for bringing those over. I have not heard whether or not the DVD and Blu-ray are playing and frankly, I'll be happy if I don't ever hear from the woman again. My, my wife was of the opinion that the next time, if, uh, if at, at any point in the future this particular family wants to order videos from us, we say, no, sorry, your money's no good here. But I don't, I don't really like treating people that way, even when they've treated me like that. And that's not a good way to do business because sometimes all it takes is one very loud, angry person and you can lose a client. So I can't afford to do that. But. Uh, having her address, I, I have entertained thoughts of sending a bunch of magazine subscriptions to the house or sending a bunch of pizzas to the house or, you know, somehow just messing with that family. But that's not what followers of Christ do. We forgive people and let things go. But the customer is always right, even when the customer is either an absolute idiot or a scammer because she got two free copies and I'm not sure she's ever even ordered one, but if it's what it takes to not have this problem anymore, then it's worth it. Anyway, 
I could talk about uh, Dungeons and Dragons training, which I undertook yesterday because I'm going to be uh, helping a dungeon master tomorrow, doing, using my improv and voice acting skills on some non-playable characters. I could talk about LibriVox that I've recorded a bunch of chapters for one project and the opening to another, but I think we'll just move on to the kid, chapters eight and nine. Let's see if Jason can figure out his love life, shall we? Chapter 8. Gertrude Muldowney was not very happy when she learned what her husband was doing. Nothing good can come from this, Dennis G. You mock my words. Dennis G. was doing everything he could to ignore those words, but he couldn't exactly tell his wife that. After the owner of the Boston Braves had laid down the law with his daughter, and the next day also with D.G. and Jason, showing no less emotion than he had before, although he did somehow manage to make the whole thing sound like Raven's fault and not his. The manager of those same Braves had thought about it all, about how happy Raven had seemed when summer began, and how well things had been going between her and Jason before Daddy got involved. So he decided to help the two of them along if he could. That Saturday in mid-July, he had just picked up Raven at the Germain home, bringing her back ostensibly to work on repainting Hattie's old room. The fact that Hattie's room was now Jason's, and he would be there too, didn't come up when D.G. talked to Bob about it. Nor had Bob asked, apparently thinking he could trust his manager to look out for his goddaughter. Gertrude did not agree with the deception. She did not agree rather forcefully. You've been around for a long time, Dennis, and I know your mama taught you something about lying. You don't think this is a worthy cause? He knew this would get his wife, because she liked seeing Raven and Jason together too. He could tell didn't stop her. It doesn't make the wrong thing the right thing. I don't care how you look at it. Lying to that awful man. Gertie didn't think much of Bob, D.G. remembered, will likely blow up in your face, and maybe you'll be thrown out of the Braves alongside the star hitter. God said his plans are good, and we have to trust that, not resort to our own measures. He hated it when she brought God into an argument. How is a man supposed to fight something like that? Well, you'll just have to pray for us all then, Gertie. Then he was sorry. By the look in her eyes, she had just been hurt. She usually was hurt when he rebuffed her so recently found faith. I do, Danny. Oh, I do. Dennis couldn't look his wife in the eyes and wasn't willing to admit it. So he found the nearest door, the one leading from the kitchen to the garage, and slammed it as he went through. Jason heard a door slamming somewhere, but he didn't care enough to find out what it meant. He was in love. She was kneeling on the other side of the room, finishing up the baseboards. Ponytailed, again, and he loved it. Not to mention the gingham shirt and overalls. Not that Raven all decked out for an evening wasn't a magical picture, but Raven dressed for hard work was just the cutest thing he had even seen. The most beautiful girl he could ever have imagined. She felt him staring, and turned, and raised an eyebrow. Don't you have work to do over there? He left. Sure, I guess. Let me see. And with that, he turned back to his own paint can and brush, and it was Raven's turn to just watch for a while. Jason wasn't very tall or very muscular, something that his sometime friend Kip, the louse, had remarked on in one of his stories. It was surprising that her man could hit a baseball so very far, because he didn't look the part. Yet he had some muscles in his arms that she didn't mind looking at for more than a moment. 
and more than that, just the line of his back beneath the white paint-stained work shirt, the shape of his neck, of his ears. Raven wanted very much to touch his ears, his neck with his fingers, or maybe her lips. She felt warm, wondering at such things, warm in places that unmarried women weren't supposed to think about or even acknowledge. She very much wanted him to turn again and look at her, and then he did. He saw the look in her eyes, but didn't want to believe it, was suddenly afraid that he was seeing things that weren't there. Hey, he said softly, because he couldn't think of anything else. Hey yourself, she returned just as softly, and smiled. He wasn't supposed to be worried about things like this. Girlfriends had come and gone back in Iowa, and Boston was not so very different. But Raven was. Raven was extremely different from anyone he had known before, and the confident, self-assured kid had learned to his surprise that there were places deep within him that weren't so confident, that needed to be held and touched, and he was still afraid, under the regard of those deep green eyes, that he was alone in his desire for her. Yet it was not Jason's way to be patient, or to let things happen by themselves, not if he could help it. You know, I probably could have done this painting by myself. I know. She put her paintbrush on top of the can, sat back on her heels, and waited. Having you come over here was pretty much just a ruse so Daddy wouldn't worry about you. I know. Despite himself, he grinned at how she was going to make him work for it. Man, did he ever love her. Well, if she was going to ask for it. So I was thinking that since you're finished and I'm pretty close, maybe you could sit next to me on the bed and let me kiss you. The words left her dizzy, her heart fluttering like a pinwheel somewhere inside, and Raven wondered at the irony of it, how she had hoped he would say such things to her, and how actually hearing such things made her feel. Loved, yes. Accepted, surely. And yet the fluttering within was wild, untamed, and she felt so deeply for him that it hurt. Raven wanted him to kiss her wanted it so much that she could feel her emotions straining for it even though he was still across the room. She had dreamed and dreamed and dreamed of his kissing her, of his sweet breath, of his soft lips. But she did not know what to say. Suddenly, it all seemed so fast, and what she wanted most was being presented to her, but maybe it wouldn't work. Maybe it wasn't right. Maybe, maybe, maybe... Jason knew enough to know when he had pushed her, but did not know if he had pushed too hard. So he took another step, if only to help her make a decision. The room had been quiet for almost a minute, and he didn't know what that meant, but he had come this far. Quietly, he cleaned the paintbrush and put it away, and stepped out of the room only so far as the upstairs washroom to clean his hands. When he opened the door, she was standing just outside, but she wouldn't look at him, just moved past as he exited. He heard the sounds that indicated that she also was washing up. Raven looked at herself in the mirror, tried washing off the small white mark of paint that marred her right cheek, but it refused to disappear. She finally gave up and thought about her hair. There wasn't anything she could do to dress better. Why didn't she bother looking nicer? She really thought they were just meeting to paint? What if he thought she looked stupid, the sheltered city baby trying to be like the country girls he knew? There wasn't anything she could do to dress better, but she could, and did, pull off the cheap rubber band that was holding back her hair. She knew he liked her hair, and her eyes. 
<laughs> he had told her as much more than once. Yet Raven Germain looked deep into those eyes, framed by gentle features and soft, darkly brown hair, and wondered why he loved her, why he wanted to kiss her, why her heart wouldn't just settle down and let her be glad for what was happening, what was about to happen, without trembling so. And when she stepped into the room again, her man was sitting patiently on one side of the small bed, near the window. Raven walked to where he was, but didn't sit right down. Still a little nervous, still trying to cool her desires into something she could control, Raven picked up a framed photo that sat in a box with the rest of Jason's things, piled away from where they were painting. She finally sat next to him and looked at it, while he respectfully kept silent, waiting for her. The woman was very beautiful, and yet Raven easily saw the resemblance to the man she was sitting by. Same eyebrows, same nose. You look a lot like her. Thank you. Then Raven put the picture back in the box and buried her face in her hands. He listened, and she wasn't crying. She was still there, still next to him, and he put a hand on her shoulder. When she didn't stiffen or pull away, he slid the same hand behind her neck until his arm encircled her shoulders, pulling her gently closer to him. Her voice was muffled, but clear enough. That feels good. Jason knew when not to say anything. After a few minutes passed, she spoke again. Jason, I'm scared. Of what? Of this. Of what happens next. <laughs> it's just a kiss, Raven. Just one? Could she handle even that? Well, maybe two, maybe three. Not four, though. That would put me over quota. She knew he was trying to joke. Maybe she was taking it all too seriously. Just a kiss, and... Not her first, either. It was no place she hadn't been before. Except that it was. Kissing little Ricky in fifth grade during a game of post office. Kissing Jack when she was 17 when her father had found out and thrown him off the Braves. Nothing she had known before could compare with this. Those were just touches, just contact, where with this man, with Jason Stiller beside her, every touch seemed magical and a little scary. His arm around her shoulders was just that, a little hug, nothing like an actual kiss, and yet she was trembling, awash with hope and love and romantic desire. Even one just might kill me. I promise you that it won't. She didn't say anything, but she lifted her head, keeping her eyes closed. Just being near her, touching her like this, was making it difficult for Jason to breathe. He loved her so much. Would she let him show her that? It seemed like the next step was up to him. Gently, gently he reached out with his right hand to touch her cheek, and she very quietly gasped when he did, and he felt how flushed her face was as he turned it towards him. She couldn't open her eyes. That was how you made dreams disappear, by opening your eyes. And then she heard him laugh softly. What? You have a paint mark on your cheek. It wouldn't come off. A crazy idea struck him, and Jason wet his right thumb in his mouth, and then he laid his hand along the line of her jaw, making her gasp again, and carefully he stroked her cheek, wiping a few times at where the mark was. Nobody had ever touched her with such gentleness, 
such patience. He laughed again, but she absolutely would not open her eyes now. Something wrong? You're right. It won't come off. Raven could only whisper, Don't stop trying. She could feel her heart pounding as if it would fly apart. And then she knew what came next. Without looking, just listening and feeling, she sensed him leaning into her, his right hand slipping back to gently cradle her head, and he was close, so very close, his breath warm against her neck, and the deep places of herself were crying for attention, and even in the end he gave her the choice. Raven, and she felt, as well as heard, his words, so close he was. Do you love me? The answer was not at all difficult or restrained. Yes, Jason, I love you. She felt him smile. Then may I give my love a kiss? Her throat was tight with the emotion of it all, emotion that threatened to drown her so that she almost couldn't get the word out. Yes. He sighed when she said this, and she felt that sigh travel up her neck, across her cheek, and then Jason Stiller kissed Raven Germain. So soft were his lips, so gentle his touch, that she just wanted the pleasure of his kiss to go on and on forever. And yet, everything suddenly wasn't okay, wasn't all taken care of and pacified, even by such a wondrous kiss. This was the point where all the songs said that life began, where the world turned rosy and all the rain clouds went away, but those were lies, just lies. Deep inside, the curtains of fear and anxiety that had been shadowing around her heart refused to go away, did not vanish in the fire of their love, but grew, welled up inside Raven until she was overcome. Jason knew no such fears, knew only the elation and wonder of this amazing girl, but he could feel Raven tensing. He could tell she was afraid, and then she pulled away, and the spell was broken. What? What's wrong? He could see in her eyes that something terrible had happened, but he did not know what. Raven couldn't have told him if she wanted to, and she did want to, desperately, seeing the hurt in his eyes. I'm sorry, I don't... I don't know. Tell me. Was it me? What did I do wrong? It wasn't you. I'm sorry. And just like that, she was gone. Jason listened to her steps descending the stair, heard muffled downstairs voices, and then a car drove away. He figured out who had given his love a ride home when D.G. Muldowney knocked on the door, stepping into the quiet room. Jason didn't say anything, and for a little while neither did his manager and friend. Finally, you two did a nice job in here. Paint looks good. Thank you. Still admiring his star hitter's handiwork, D.G. continued, oh, She looked like a deer caught in somebody's headlights. I saw. What happened? I don't know. D.G. could tell when someone, especially one of his own players, was lying to him. But looking into Jason's eyes, he wasn't telling fibs. Huh. Well, I'm sure it'll be all right. Are you? The question was in earnest. Yeah. But saying that, Dennis had to turn away so that Jason couldn't look into his eyes. Oh, I wish I could explain how I do it, really. It's not like I have some kind of sixth sense that tells me exactly where the ball's going to be, Phil. At least, I don't know that I have any. Jason sat back on the dugout bench, relaxing on the outside, while his eyes still caught every nuance, 
every movement of the game taking place out in the hot sun. That sounds trivial or maybe stupid, but I just put the bat where the ball is when it comes down the alley. I look at the pitch, I see where it's going, and I make it go the other way. Gee whiz. Phil picked at a loose stitch on his mitt. So you can't let me in on the secret, huh? Jason grinned at him. Bryce had asked how in the world he could keep on hitting and hitting and hitting despite everyone's beliefs that getting a home run in baseball was about the hardest thing to do when it came to sports. The kid had grown to like his fellow rookie and wished he could tell Bryce how to do it as well, but it was magic even to Jason, and how do you teach somebody magic? Sure, that's easy. Uh, you get born with a natural ability and uh, make something out of it. Thanks a lot, Phil returned wryly, rubbing his twisted right ankle for a moment. The injury had kept him out of the day's game. That's all I have. Then the currently up-to-bat Senators hit a line drive past Bud Triplehorn's ear that had the outfield scrambling, and for a minute or two both young men were engrossed in the game, which, at that moment, they were losing 10-7. to The pennant race was heating up, even as the summer itself reached record temperatures, threatening to melt pitcher and batter alike right into the ground. It was a hard time for pitchers especially, thanks to a hard fact of life called playing in the barrel. When the race for victory in early fall started getting hammered out in July and August, and a team faced off against an unimportant opponent, someone they could easily beat or even lose to without it being a huge problem, baseball managers tended to save on pitchers. Usually whoever went out in the beginning was there most of the game. Thus was a pitcher in the barrel, forced to sweat for hours in the hot sun, watching batter after batter hit the pitches he couldn't put strength behind by three in the afternoon. It wasn't fun, and it threw a pitcher's coveted earned run average to the four wins, but it was a part of baseball, and those pitchers who weren't on the mound were very thankful for the one who was. Jason was watching Bud, noticing how much effort he was still putting into his pitches, into his strategy, even though the game was a throwaway. The kid himself hadn't sit, hit a single ball that afternoon in four at-bats. It was mighty hot out in the Boston sun, and he'd become a little lazy. Watching Triplehorn work as hard as he could despite not needing to win the game, despite the damage it might do to his health, Jason wondered if the man was very noble or especially stupid. The kid reflected that at least nobody had tied his shoes together for a while. He could be thankful for that. Phil had apparently lost interest in the game long enough to think of another question, which was great in Jason's opinion. When he had time to think whatever he wanted, his thoughts always returned to chestnut hair and green eyes. Whatever had happened, it was still too painful for contemplation. He wished sometimes that he could talk to somebody about it, but he and Phil weren't that kind of close, and Jason wasn't about to speak to that rat gumbo anytime soon. So if you can't tell me how you do it, how's about you just try and tell me what it's like? Jason wasn't paying close attention. Hitting a homer? Oh, come on, you know how that goes. No, I don't. The kid spared a moment from thinking about himself to look at his friend. Come to think of it, Phil hadn't done a lot of hitting, hadn't had a lot of at-bats to even try. Jason was a little ashamed of his pat answer. Oh, well, it's like a dream come true, Phil. It's like, I mean, it feels just great. The ball comes at you as fast as anything, but once you've connected, once it's going the other way, everything slows down. First base is calling, and... You know, you got a bit of trotting to do before you can rest on your laurels, but the important thing, that round white ball just keeps getting smaller and smaller until it disappears. 
You feel like you could do anything. Like a million bucks? Jason grinned at his friend. <laughs> at least. You're the king of the world for a second or two. I'll bet it's a far cry from the garage leak being out here where it counts. Oh, maybe. And he leaned back to think about it. Maybe it is, but in some ways it's not, either. Was that English? I couldn't tell. Oh, don't bug me. It's hot out. What I mean to say is that... Well, here, let me try this. You know the baseball fantasy that I think every boy has when he's growing up, whether he becomes a doctor or a lawyer or a short-order cook or whatever? I think I do, yeah. Pretend I don't and tell me. Bryce smiled. It was almost a sad smile, the sort of expression that someone wears when he remembers a dream that never came true. Bottom of the ninth, seventh game of the World Series, losing by one run, one guy on base, two outs, and I'm up to bat. Are you now? Oh yeah. Phil leaned back and closed his eyes, the better to see it. It's a packed house, and every eye is on the pitcher who's warming up his nicest fastball. I tap twice on home plate, then swing the stick onto my shoulder and face him down. And in slow motion, he rears back, then around, and down the alley that white ball zips, but so slow it seems that I can see the red stitching. I can almost read the maker's name on the side. And just at the right time, I shift and swing, and the bat meets the ball as solid as anything. Everybody in the park hears that crack. And Bryce's eyebrows lifted, hearing that sound in his sunburned ears. That rings around the world, and I trot quietly from home to first to second to third, and then home again, home again, jiggity-jog. Suddenly Phil yawned and opened his eyes, stamping both feet on the ground. And the whole team carries me off on their shoulders. The most beautiful girl there gives me a big kiss and says she'll marry me, and nobody ever finds the ball. Doesn't that sound about right? Jason looked Phil in the eye, and they understood one another more than ever before. Yeah, that sounds about right. Except I always made it even harder that it wasn't just two outs, but also two strikes, three balls. The last possible pitch. Yeah, like I played dumb on the first two and let them whip by. Then that last one, even though the pitcher's mad at me now and ready to give me the best, hardest pitch he's ever thrown in his life, I still swing around just at the right time. And both young men heard a crack in their imaginations that rivaled anything they had ever heard in real life. Every time I go up to home plate, that same fantasy is in the back of my mind. And every time I do manage to catch a piece of the ball, especially when I can make it disappear, it's like that for just a little bit. Well, you'll probably get your chance. Series isn't that far off. Anything's possible. It was too hot to keep talking. And while the game went on, and Jason occasionally dragged himself out to home plate, the conversation with Phil replayed in his mind many times. He knew exactly how that fantasy went, and realized that before the major leagues, even before the garage league when he was playing in somebody's vacant lot with an electrical taped bat and a 12-cent baseball, the imagined glory, that amazing home run sound, had been exactly the same. Up to and including the most beautiful girl in the stadium waiting at home plate with a big kiss for no one but him. Even if all the rest came true, which it very well might the way the season was going, would it be worth anything without that final happy ending? Chapter 9 She stepped out of the limousine in the same beige dress and green hair ribbon that she had worn the last time they had met at the quiet Italian restaurant, and for a quick moment Jason wondered if he'd been allowed to go back in time, give a second chance to do things right. Except that he didn't know what he had done wrong the first time around. The moment passed. He stepped up to meet her, 
and she smiled at him, but there was an obvious wall between the two. Something was still very wrong, and somehow he knew she didn't want him to touch her. What did that mean? What had he done? Jason felt like he was going crazy. The look in his eyes shamed her, and Raven wished with all her might that she could make all of the strange feelings, and fears especially, just disappear. But she couldn't. She had tried for a week, but they refused to go. As they walked together to a waiting table, several people stopped Jason, apologizing for bothering him, but wanting to tell him how great they thought he was, and would he mind? She waited to one side while he signed several autographs, and he seemed not to be very arrogant about it. He never talked pridefully about the fame that had been handed to him. He was such a wonderful man, so handsome and tender and romantic. Why was she so afraid? What was it that her heart could not let go of? Raven felt like she was going to go crazy. Your father didn't mind this meeting? They had ordered their meals, and now there was nothing left to say, except everything. Raven heard his question and looked down. He knows why I'm here. Jason was not a foolish young man. If Robert knew that Raven was meeting him, and the last thing he wanted was for them to have a relationship... Oh, no. Jason, what did I do wrong? What wasn't enough? I thought we had something between us. We did. We do, Jason. She looked up, then, and he almost wished she hadn't. The walls were up again. Although, apparently, it wasn't his fault. They were still up. And he couldn't look inside her anymore. And she knew that, and the worst part was that she still could look into Jason could still see all of the affection and love and desire he had for her, that he just wanted the chance to pour out to her, but it wasn't, it couldn't. This isn't easy for me, and it's not something I want to do. Daddy finally got through to you, huh? Made you see the light? That hurt worse than if he'd actually struck her. Raven sat in her seat and gaped at him. He regretted his words immediately, but there was no reshelving them now. I mean, isn't that what this is all about? You're about to break my heart because you're afraid of your father? That hadn't come out right, either. When did he lose control of his emotions? Of the situation? Nothing was going right anymore, and the harder he tried to hold on to the one thing that really mattered to him, the further away she slipped. What was he going to do? Jason, you don't know anything, okay? Her eyes were filling with tears, and they were very angry. Her father might have something to do with her fears, with her doubts, but there was a lot more behind that. Things even she didn't understand, and what she needed and craved for someone to love her and try to understand, even if it hurt them to do so. Raven knew, somehow, that she wasn't going to find that in Jason Stiller. The worst thing was that he wasn't a jerk. He didn't want to hurt her, and yet he couldn't be enough. He still failed to be what she needed, and there was no way that Raven could find to get around hurting him because she had to say goodbye. Please don't make this harder than it already is. It would have been the perfect time for Jason to be quiet and listen, which he was supposedly good at, but his own wants and needs were shouting louder than his conscience. Come on, you're thinking too much, Raven. Why don't we just have a peaceful dinner and then take a walk along the river, you know? Find a quiet place alone? Wasn't there anything in that room that you liked? Wasn't anything there worth investing in? She scowled at him. That's not a solution, Jason. It's not going to make anything better, and we're both old enough to know that. 
He was, he should have been, but holding her, touching her, the comfort of that embrace was too dear to him, something he depended on way too much to step back from. He couldn't just be her friend. Not anymore. Am I really that bad of a kisser? Her only response was to bury her face in her hands, and he felt ashamed. How awful it was. She wanted so badly to assure him that he was wrong in his doubt, that his smile and his touch and everything about him were such a gift, such a joy. Or they had been until whatever this nastiness was, churning up from the depths of her heart came to steal that away. Her heart and her body both wanted him to hold her, but her mind had gone over and over and over the way that things were and knew that it was no solution to her problems, knew that the fears would still be there, knew it was time to grow up, at least a little. While she desperately hoped Jason would understand, maybe even want to come with her, somehow Raven knew that his decision was not one she could make or even influence. In the end, they were both on their own, like they had always been. His voice, across the table, was not as gentle as she had heard it before. Why don't I make sure we're floating on the same boat here? For whatever reason, you're scared, and I can't fix that, and we're through. She looked at him, then, and it was his turn to look away. Because she met his bluntness, his attempt to shame her with the lowering of her defenses, the green eyes that looked at him were unguarded. But what he saw inside was new, and sorrowful like it had never been before. He looked away and understood. It was over. Jason's mind tried to collect on the sudden, churning thoughts of the future, where he wouldn't be holding her the close, whether he wouldn't be looking into her eyes, where all the plans and designs and ideas that had formed were all suddenly sluiced down into a bottomless sewer, along with his broken heart. It would have been a fine moment for understanding and compassion and unconditional love. For Jason, there was only pain and sudden, spiteful anger. That's it. That's all we can expect from the high and mighty princess. She sat and looked at him and did not respond. Come on, Raven, Miss Limousine, Miss gets everything she wants. Why don't we be honest? I don't really matter to you, do I? I'm just this stupid country boy you wanted a quick fling with just for a change, huh? Isn't that it? Deep inside, where a bit of honesty resided, Jason knew he didn't believe those things knew they weren't true, but if she was going to hurt him. Uh, thanks a lot, Miss Tremaine, for allowing me the pleasure of your company for these past few weeks. Gee whiz, ma'am, it sure was a change from them ugly fillies we got in Iowa. His voice got quiet, and he found himself ashamed of his own words, but unable to put the cork back in. Then again, none of them ever hurt me like this. She sat and looked at him, and did not speak. The tears streaming down her face were the only evidence that she was even listening, besides those beautiful eyes. She was supposed to get angry. She was supposed to fight back. She was supposed to make an effort and act like maybe she at least had some sort of feelings in the matter. Even if she hated him, at least that was better than indifference. Well, isn't that great? Now I get to be the laughingstock of the Braves. I get to hear all about how wonderfully kind Raven was to take the idiot hayseed rookie out on the town for a few short weeks. Sort of a community service project. Now, well, maybe if I'm lucky, Kip will tell all about this in the paper. Perhaps the whole country will get a big laugh out of the kid, the little baby. Thanks a lot. I hadn't been through any real hazing. I should beat up a couple of guys on the team for not telling me it came from you, huh? How many guys have you done this to, I wonder? Another uh, notch on your belt? Get him to kiss you and then goodbye, Sally. I'm off to find somebody who's not a loser. 
like garbage in his mouth that he had to spew all over her before it started rotting. The words kept coming until the filth of his own mind shocked him into silence. She was still crying and still silent. Raven had been called worse. She had been treated worse, and in the end, a kid from Iowa didn't really know the kind of insults that were really dragging the bottom of the barrel. But never before had she been so vulnerable. Never before had she trusted someone with her heart utterly and completely. It was such a betrayal. Apparently there were about twelve sides of Jason that she had never seen, or, more honestly, never let herself believe could exist. No one, not even her father, had ever caused her so much hurt in her life as the man she still loved. She wanted to return the favor. She wanted so badly to insult him, to yell at him, to make him hurt that much. But that wasn't right. The same deep conviction that was making her pull back from him, making her go through whatever the pain was instead of letting Jason Stiller kiss it away, that same call to grow up some was telling her that she couldn't respond in kind, that she couldn't get mad in return, as good as it would feel. And so Raven gathered her things and stood up from the table, and the one thing she said to him before she left was said not out of spite or malice, but sadness, rather, the sadness that came from finally realizing the truth. Their eyes met, and she swallowed a tear or two, and then she said it. You're just like my father. And then she turned and walked out. Jason Stiller sat alone at a table set for two, eating his meal and watching hers grow silently cold. She could have said anything, and after his words, Jason knew he should have expected a similar windstorm from her end. But she had just said that one thing, and the worst part of it all, she was probably right. I'm sorry. It's okay. Really, I need you to forgive me for acting like such a jerk. I was wrong. Like I said, it's okay. Consider yourself forgiven. Thank you. Kip Gumbo clapped his friend on the shoulder as they sat together in the Braves' dugout. Jason had thought very hard over the weekend about what she had said and had been able to find little correlation between his actions, childish though they might, might have been, and the jerk that called himself her father. He no longer thought she was right after all. After a great deal of thought, Jason remembered how snooty she had been at first, how uptight and self-righteous, and it became easy for him, as he kept working on it, to be angry at her, to deny that he felt anything for her, to just be a strong, tough guy who didn't need anyone. He remembered who his true friends were. So the kid had made sure to call his sports writing friend, the same guy he had been angry at the week before, and invite him to the next game. Kip didn't sound too excited about being there, but after Jason had gotten a chance to talk about it and apologize, the writer was his friend once more. And he was even nice enough not to say, I told you so, sticking with, oh, that's a tough break, Stiller. Really, it is. You told me it would happen. Oh, it was just a feeling, that's all. And I'm very sorry that it proved true. Not as much as I am. His eyes darkly watched the playing field, and Jason sighed, frustrated most of all with himself. Females, women, they were supposed to be strange. They were supposed to screw around with your heart and make you miserable. Wasn't that why sports existed in the first place? To forget about women? Except that it wasn't working. 
His favorite venue, his dream, lay in front of him, but Jason didn't care. It would soon be his turn to bat, and while his eyes looked at white lines between whiter bases, his mind refused to be switched away from the green of her eyes. I don't care, he whispered furiously to himself. I don't care. Uh, you say something? No. Kip let it pass. Jason was glad to have him back, glad to be around other guys, his own kind, folks who would understand and approve of him, tell him he was worth something in the world despite other rejections. Jason watched the ball game taking place in the hot sun of a late July afternoon and felt awful. Dennis G. had a vague idea of what had happened upstairs that one afternoon, the week before. Someone had said or done something wrong. Probably the kid, D.G. knowing how the world worked and that it was always the man's fault, no matter what. And now nobody was talking to nobody, and as expected, his friend Jason had returned to what he knew, what was comforting. His friends, his skills, the beautiful and constant game of baseball. That day's game, the three games over that weekend, were important. The Braves versus the Reds had most people talking about a preview to the pennant race that was quickly approaching. The Braves needed to pull together and give Illinois a good trouncing. D.G. needed the kid to be behind that. The inning ended, the Braves began running through the batting order, and just before Jason went up on deck, D.G. put a hand on his arm. Go out there and get him, kid. We all believe in you. The look he got in return was not in the least filled with vigor and encouraged hope. Jason moved past without speaking, carrying his bat like it was a sledgehammer, and he was sentenced to rock-breaking labor in Alcatraz. She's just a dame, kid, the manager of the Braves muttered under his breath. Sure, the female species was nice and all, but Dennis hated to see one of those women folk get so under a man's skin that he couldn't enjoy the holy game of baseball, for crying out loud. A home run or two, that would cure him, surely. Slug one out of there, Jason. His favorite player didn't turn to acknowledge the call. DG's frustration mirrored the kids, though neither was aware of this. Jason was annoyed at his own mind, or perhaps at his heart, that refused to let go, that would not acknowledge the indisputable fact that it was all over, that all he had to do was move on, start talking to any of the dozens of cute girls that were always on hand, always around, always batting their eyelashes at him and begging for autographs. Easily three in every dozen were very attractive, very nice, would be wonderful to wrap one's arms around and forget about the problems of the world. The Reds pitcher would later brag about his prowess, knocking three big ones past the best batter in the league. But it was chestnut hair and green eyes, and that laugh like no other that knocked out the kid. Strikes one, two, and three came and went in as many minutes, and it was the third out, and the bottom of the inning began. Shaking his head, Jason walked away from home plate, passing Bud Triplehorn halfway to the dugout. D.G. was standing where he had been, trying to think of something to say to the kid that would buck up his spirits, and he was the third person, besides Jason and Bud, who heard what the star pitcher said to the best hitter as they passed one another. Oh, thanks for nothing, Mama's boy. The manager heard the comment, and without even really registering it, made a mental note to rebuke Triplehorn concerning team spirit later. He had heard such comments often enough that no special attention needed to be paid anymore. But D.G. did keep his eyes on the rookie Brave, on the young man who had become the bread and butter of his baseball team, and he saw his friend wince, 
his step slow until the kid stopped dead. Jason was still a few yards away from the dugout fence, but not so far that his manager couldn't see the look in his eyes. D.G. had not seen such a look of rage in a long time, but before he thought to say anything, it was too late. Bud Dribblehorn's little comment struck Jason a fairly insignificant blow compared to, you're just like my father, it really wasn't much. But the remark brought to mind all the little things from the past months. The jibes, the pranks, the pointed fingers and rude comments and bloody nose. And Jason Stiller was not in a very self-affirming place at the time anyway. He let the comment fester and build within him, let the anger grow until he could stand it no longer. And then, with a sharp growl, he turned and sprinted towards the pitcher, who was walking towards his mound proudly, unaware of his danger. Forgetting where he was, who he was, and the fact that Bud Triplehorn outweighed him by at least 60 pounds, Jason pounded towards the bigger man, yelling, You stupid jerk! just before he slammed his left shoulder into the small of Triplehorn's back. Caught by surprise and completely off guard, the star pitcher of the Boston Braves folded like a house of cards in front of 7,205 people, all of whom were apparently shocked into sudden silence. Jason didn't notice how quiet things had become. He didn't hear when DG began yelling, or even when the crowd itself started making noise again, getting into the fight, cheering for one player or the other. He just kept hitting and hitting and hitting Bud Triplehorn until three of his fellow Braves dragged him off the man. Then several more players were required to keep Bud from lunging at Jason. A good five minutes were wasted hustling both players off the field, assuring the umpire that something in the water must have caused it and it would of course never happen again, and getting a relief pitcher in to do Bud's job. Jason heard all of this going on vaguely around him, but at that moment it was much more important to revel in the sudden, savage joy of victory, revenge over an enemy, his vanquished foe. It came as a complete surprise when his manager climbed down the stairs to the dugout, walked over to where he was sitting, and slapped him sharply across the face. D.G. figured a good whack was just what the doctor had ordered. At least it knocked the smirk off the kid's face. I don't know what you think you're doing, young man, but I have never seen such a pathetic or childish display of bad sportsmanship in my entire life. What do you have to say for yourself? He didn't expect an apology. He wasn't disappointed. Ah, oh, for crying out loud, haven't you seen the stuff he's been doing to me for ages? The jokes, the pranks, always poking fun at my expense, doing everything he can to make my life miserable. Jason was just warming up to his subject, gesturing at the silent, glowering pitcher sitting across from him when D.G. cut him off at first base. Shut up, Mr. Stiller. I have heard enough out of you for one day. Either you can hack it or you can't, kid. Remember me telling you that? I am very sorry that you and Mr. Triplehorn have decided to be childish, but by all that's holy, I do not have to sit around and let your little tiff ruin this baseball team. Do you hear me? There was a game going on outside, somewhere close by, but the Braves, that were sitting uncomfortably in the cool dugout, were not looking out at the world. D.G. kept reminding himself to keep his temper in check for the sake of the team. The boy boxer hadn't answered his question, but D.G. made an effort and managed not to raise his voice any further when he repeated it. Yes, sir, I hear you. Bud Triplehorn decided to throw his two cents in. I was just giving the rookie a hard time. It's not like D.G. whirled on his old friend. You can just put a sock in it too, Francis Dean. Don't tell me you weren't doing your part to get this mess started and keep it going. I guess I've waited too long to say something. He stepped back and regarded both players. So I'm speaking now. 
Triple Horn, we already got somebody out there pitching for you. Not something as good, not someone that I would like to be counting on today, but oh well. If you don't need to see a doctor for any cuts or abrasions, the pitcher waved this away, then you can just sit there and think of all the ways you've been harping at Jason Stiller since March. If you can come up with one that in any way benefited this baseball team, you're welcome to play tomorrow. If for some strange reason you can't complete that task, then a formal apology to me, the team, and Mr. Stiller will be equally acceptable. Bud glowered, but said nothing. DG turned around. Kid, I want you out of this dugout right now. What? You heard me. You want to watch this game? Buy a ticket and watch from the stands. But as of now, you are hereby suspended. Jason looked like he had when DG slapped him, only worse. I... Uh, until when? Until next week in Philly, and only then if you've proven that you have a place here. The manager of the Braves looked at the concrete floor, wondering, as he often did, if he was doing the right thing. He heard, rather than saw, the desperation his star hitter was feeling. Come on, DG... I'm sorry, okay? Dennis looked up then, his eyes boring into Jason's and what the older man had to say hurt them both. That's Mr. Muldowney to you, young man. Only the players on this team call me anything else, and that's a right you have to re-earn. Now scat. DG turned away from the kid, from his players, from everything, standing unconsciously right where Jason Stiller had stood not long before, looking out at the same baseball game without really seeing it. Knowing somehow that thanks to his decision, the Braves were probably going to lose every game that weekend against the Reds. And yet it wasn't the lost games, or the foreshadowing of a possibly lost pennant race that made him frown. Dennis G. stood in his dugout wondering what had really bothered him more. The Braves' dependence on the kid, or having to rebuke his friend. He didn't hear when Jason left. After waiting several long minutes, he turned around, and the boy was gone. Raven had been sitting in the fifth row, near third base, but despite being across the infield, had seen the entire fight, and watched D.G. yell at Jason down in the dugout. She saw Jason disappear through the clubhouse door, and knew, because she knew him, which way he would probably leave the stadium. But because she did not know herself, she couldn't find anything inside that would let her go to comfort him. So she sat where she was, watching a game that she cared nothing for, not when that one player was missing. Bud Triplehorn sat with his back to the game, not caring who won or lost or how well it was pitched, not if he couldn't do the pitching. It only took a minute or three for him to decide on how his apology would go, how he could make it sound official. Wouldn't mean anything to him or anybody else, but DG would feel that his star pitcher had decided to be a team player and blah blah. A nice fake apology would take care of things. Then for a moment, remembering how it had been when he had first joined the Braves, remembering being the kid's age, Bud allowed himself to walk a few feet in Jason Stiller's shoes, wonder at how the hayseed might be feeling. He didn't like himself very much, didn't think Missy would be very proud of him, or the children either. Bud Dripplehorn sat with his back to the game, wondering about that a little. Robert Germain had been absently watching the game from his usual box, more concerned with the market than with who was at bat although his calculating, analytical mind kept running through what he knew of Jason Stiller and what he knew of Raven. The thought of her daughter making a life with some dirt-grubbing, tobacco-chewing baseball player... Oh, it disgusted and frightened him at the same time. 
When the big fight happened, Robert was a little too busy to notice, thinking of men that he knew, men that he respected, who might be called upon to provide his only daughter with a more suitable match, now that things were getting that serious. Kip Gumbo had been forgotten in the corner of the dugout, not only by the players and their manager, but by the kid himself. He hadn't known whether or not to follow Jason, so he hadn't, thinking his friend might wish to be alone. He thought for a long time about the fight, about the hazing that had led up to it, and about how interesting a story it would make, how happy his editor would be to receive it, and about the fat check that would come with the sale. Kip even spent the last two innings of the game writing up the story on his little notebook, getting it as good as he was able. Then he talked with Beanie, the devoted fan, afterwards. Kip got to thinking about Jason's dedication, and his courage, and about how much he had forgiven a dumb sports writer for already. Taking his leave from Beanie for a moment, Kip ripped the pages out of his notebook and threw them away. Other writers, other interested parties had seen the fight as well, and plenty more heard the eyewitness report and wanted to know more. But Jason Stiller proved unavailable for comment. Oh, Jason, Jason, Jason. I, uh, I hope... Our hero is sympathetic enough. I mean, heroes have to have flaws and there has to be conflict, but if he comes across too much as just a whiny baby, that's that's not good. Wonder what's gonna happen. He's kicked off the team or at least on a, he's on a break. All right, I'm not even gonna try to make jokes. I'm just gonna wrap this up because as is previously established, I'm exhausted. But uh, if you need to deal with someone in the customer service industry as a, as a customer, please, even if they get it wrong, be polite. We're doing the best we can. If you're out there and you have to deal with customers and they're treating you like, you know what, um, I'm, I understand. And uh, it beats digging ditches, I guess, unless the customers you're dealing with are the ones that have hired you to dig a ditch. Meantime, whatever you're doing, own your stage. And uh, we'll see you here in a little while.